May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, doing our bit to help preserve the legacy of Shunju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. Now, uh, today we have a guest, Linda Hess. Uh, Linda came to the San Francisco Zen Center in 1974, Uh, but before that, she spent time in India. In fact, she might be in India right now. Uh, She was going to India in the mid-60s, and uh, her her specialty is the— well, I think of her especially as the poet Kabir in India. And uh, anyway, she's going to tell you all about it in this uh, podcast. Um, let me tell you a little. I'm, I'm going to read to you just a little blurb on her from Stanford. Linda Hess teaches in the Department of Religious Studies at Stanford University and is co-director of Stanford Center for South Asia. Her previous work on North Indian bhakti poetry and performance includes The Bijak of Kabir and numerous articles on Kabir, Tulsidas, and Ramlila performance. Uh, so, um, now, Linda has uh, three books uh, the Bijak of Kabir, which I just read, which came out in 1983. Bodies of Song, Oral Traditions and Performance Worlds in North India. That was 2015. And another one, Emptiness. Kumar Gandharva performs the poetry of Kabir. Hmm. All right. And she's... As you will hear, she's just finishing up a major work on Kabir. Anyway, Kabir is great, and I think you'll enjoy what she has to say. And um, uh, we're planning on getting her back uh, to do a Kabir performance um, soon. Uh, she told me she'd do it, you know, when she had time after she got back from India. Oh, incidentally, that thing I read about her, um, you know, this is very typical of college uh, university websites. I know because I look at them for people I'm doing podcasts with or making a cuke page for, and uh, they don't update them. I mean, she's not teaching at Stanford. She's involved with Stanford, but she's retired from teaching. She did that 21 years before that. She was at UC Berkeley. 
but no big deal. Uh, there, there were three places in this podcast, four, I think four, where I cut some material out uh, and uh, quite a bit. I think about 40 minutes added up because she and I would just talk, talk, talk. Uh, and um, I, I cut out almost entirely stuff I said. But, um, she, you know, she had some interruptions. She had her husband, Kaz Tanahashi, Kazuaki Tanahashi, the well-known translator of Dogen and other uh, great uh, Buddhist mm, artistic Japanese works, and uh, uh, a uh, indefatigable uh, uh soldier for peace and sanity and anti-nuclear work and and calligraphy great great calligrapher anyway um and uh, oh and you'll, you'll notice on one point here she says he's going to be 90 tomorrow and then later she says it's Kaz's birthday well he just called her from japan so he was already 90 <laughs> <laughs> in Japan, <laughs> but when you—I mean—that's what I assume it just happened. Uh, and um, uh, there's a few more breaks. You might notice something just going from one thing to another. And right at the end, it just sort of ends with us saying goodbye real quick. And that's because all our talking—the the, most of the talking that was cut out was right before the end—just uh, didn't fit. You know, so uh, anyway, I think you'll like it. Uh, oh, I have a very sad announcement. Last week's uh, podcast guest, John Nelson. Uh, if you heard it, you might remember that I said uh, we were going to do another one about where we focus more on on Soto Zen and Zen in Japan. Because, you know, John uh, uh, has been a professor in, in religious studies and focusing a lot on Zen in Japan, but religious studies. Uh, and um, so we were going to do another podcast and talk about that. He's really interesting. He's really neat. He, but he wasn't answering my emails, you know. But I, I did the, the talk uh, with him for the podcast in October, and it went up, you know, just a week ago. Uh, and so, you know, I was asking him, I was t letting him know about it, and I was asking him for uh, if he has any younger to pick picture, any younger picture of him, because um, on on Cuke, uh on the Cuke podcast page, we have a then and now photo. And the now photo is the cover of the podcast, is the more recent, uh, relatively recent photo. Anyway, I didn't got no answer. Finally, I got an answer from his son telling me that John died on December 18th. All of a sudden, listen, he was healthy. There was no uh, warning. Uh, he was in good shape. He exercised. And he had a positive outlook on the future he was uh he was the last person you would have thought died would die and it's very sad uh so uh gate gate uh 
Mm, sorry. Uh, ah, all right. I, th I think it's a little early, but, um, you know, <laughs> what was it? Uh, Mom had said, uh, nobody wants to come back. <laughs> so when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause, and we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever and give Linda Hess a call. Hi, David. Linda. Hi there. How are you doing? Thank you for agreeing to Zoom. Oh, I've, I do Zoom when people want. Let me look. You've got, you've got one of Kaz's um, uh, insos, semicircles up there, and uh, yeah. one of my Yumi's prints. Um, yeah, well, I've got all kinds of stuff over there. Got Avalokiteshvara, yeah. an Indian Avalokiteshvara in the middle, mm -hmm. and all kinds of other things that joined up together during the years. Hmm, but it, it's ra actually rather neat and tidy. I have also got a dog right here who's barking so loud that I'm going to make her stop. No, I can't hear it at all. That's because of my little ear pods, but I can hear it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, really good. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. Yes, good girl. Well, you've got okay. a really good system. I mean, it's it's not picking up any background noise. That sort of noise is really yeah. hard to filter These out. These are your Apple ear pods or whatever. They cost yeah. about a, over $100, but they're good. So uh, what are you up to? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, want to hear about my, my present life, my entire yes. life, my yeah. life for the, last, for the last four weeks and the next four weeks? Yeah. Or whatever comes, whatever comes up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, both. I'm drinking a cup of lemon verbena tea from leaves that were given to me by Wendy Johnson in her garden and then dried by her and then passed on to me. That's what I'm drinking. And I'm drinking it out of a Stanford cup, which is also part of my life or my history. Mm. So I was teaching at Stanford for over 20 years. I retired in 2017. The main thing I did in my work life, I mean, in my professional life you could say that to um, when people ask what I do is I would have been going to India for so many years I went to India before I ever went to Zen Center and after and during and India working in India has been the work has been the location of the work that I do but especially I translate poetry of the poet Kabir yeah and 
you know, I've written some books. And right now, I'm the work that I'm doing, I don't teach anymore. But I am translating, I'm working on a big translation project of Kabir. Hmm. And it's going to be in a series of public uh, publication of Indian literature um, that's being published by Harvard and Yeah, um, it's a lovely series of literature that's subsidized for by the by the son of some tech billionaire in India, Mm. and um, so yeah, I try to get about two poems a day in a final Mm. form because we've been working on this for years. We meaning I have a partner in Prague. We're co co translating this and co writing the book. We've been doing it for several years. So now we've been through several drafts of every poem, 370 poems. And now we're doing the final draft and we're on the last 35 poems out of 300. There's 370 poems. Wow. So I spend some of my days as much as regularly as I can working on this translation project. And then I still do a little Zen and I have a bunch of friends and I have my family. Um, I'm healthy. I just had my 81st birthday. Mm. Kaz is going to have his 90th birthday tomorrow. Wow. Thanks for telling me. Uh, he's in he's in Japan with a bunch of people. He's co-leading he's co-led trips a lot with um, Joan Halifax, but this time he's doing it with Natalie Goldberg. And so he's in Japan right now with a bunch of people, and I'm sh- sure they're going to celebrate him. But we had mm-hmm. a huge party for him at Green Gulch um, on September sixth, in honor of him, and it was really quite fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. You think he is one of the giants of the millennium if you were at that party, and he is pretty good, you know. He had a lot of a lot of fantastic people giving tribute. Yeah. To him. His his reputation is sort of like the Dalai Lama's. It's uh, like is it's uh really, really good. Uh and the way he's conducted himself, what mm-hmm. he's focused on in his life is very admirable. Um, uh, all right. You mentioned a couple of books. The books I've done? Yeah. Um, what, what are these books? What are the titles and what years did they come out? I'll, I'll show them to you. Are all related to Kabir. Ta-da. So the very first one, this isn't the first edition, but it's called the Bijak of Kabir. And it was, done way back when I was li- I was living at Zen Center but then I went to India for my PhD work and uh, what year so I really did most of that work in the late 70s but the book came out in 1983 uh-huh. and what does Bijak mean Bijak is the name that's used for a sacred for a collection of poetry by Kabir that a that a organized sort of sect of his followers 
takes as their sacred book. So that's where I got started. There's Kabir was an oral poet. He didn't write anything. He didn't write anything. So mm. everything we have was written down by other people. And there's this very vibrant oral tradition that's been going on in India forever and is still going on. So in various ways, collections of Kabir poetry got written down in different places. And this happens to be a collection that was made by people that organized because they thought he was either the greatest human that ever lived or some of them thought he was God incarnate. So um, this is their sacred collection. And that's what I was given when I was first getting started, you know, that like, here's something you should work on when I was in. So I was in Benares, a.k.a. Varanasi. I lived there for almost three years. And that's when I was working on this. Kabir lived in Benares in the 15th century. So that's the first book. And it was first published by North Point Press. You know, you know, North Point Press. Uh, Yeah, I remember North Point Press. It was out of the Bay Area, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they it published um, Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry, and it was a a literary press of very high caliber, um, run by Jack Shoemaker. Shoemaker, who now runs a a similar press called Counterpoint. But right. anyway, Jack uh, Shoemaker. This was enough of a kind of literary and spiritual book. And he wanted me to de-emphasize the purely academic part because I had done this PhD on it. So I did that and uh, put it into the form of a book of beautiful poetry with a nice introduction. So that was the first book. But since then, 1983, then that went out of print. And then some, it, but it's been in print ever since. And this is a later edition from Oxford University Press in New York. So this this one was a keeper. It stayed in press for so many years. Stayed in print, I mean. Yeah. That's your first book. That's the first book. Let me say something about why I was doing this in the first place. Yeah. Um, so uh, without, at the moment, going back into my entire life history, I was always writing poetry from the age of six or so. That so poetry and then eventually literature was really at the center of my life from a mm. really young really young age. So there was poetry. Um, then there was human life suffering and striving after, or yeah, being driven to kind of solve the problem of suffering, starting with myself. <laughs> I tended to be a religious person. I tended to be religious in that I was drawn to religion because religion seemed to be interested in important things. So I was brought up Jewish and I, this was in like the 1950s. I'm born in the 1940s. Uh, I take a great interest in being Jewish. My, I was more religious than the rest of my family, but um, so I went into it more than they made me. I did Hebrew. I did it, whatever. But um uh, I'll say something intriguing. I won't elaborate on it. Oh, my gosh. I know, uh, but I mean, I'm just trying to have a, a, a through line on telling about how I got to Kabir. If you want to hear about the intriguing part later, you can ask. But because of things that happened in my family and because of the experiences I had in the synagogue, I became very disillusioned with Judaism. In the 1950s, there were plenty of good reasons for that. Lots of people did. Lots of them went and studied Buddhism and Hinduism after that. 
but I had some pretty serious experiences that made me turn away from Judaism, but I was still religious, you know, I was still looking for something. Hmm. So everybody I knew was Christian. I looked into that and I discovered they had the same problems the Jews had in certain ways. Um, and that wasn't going to satisfy me. And then in high school, uh, in my American literature class, I read Emerson, Thoreau, and Whitman. Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman were known as the American transcendentalists. And the reason for that was because they were very interested in thinking about what the human situation is and how we transcend the smallness of the human people's awareness of themselves. And they, Emerson and Thoreau, discovered ancient Indian texts, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. They had between them, the very first translation of the Bhagavad Gita that was ever made into English. Um, and they read it together. And they showed that influence in their writings, especially Emerson. And I, when I read Emerson's version of kind of the spiritual truth in his essays in some poetry, I said, aha, this is more like what I'm looking for. So I found out that he got hit these ideas from Indian sources when I said when I was about 16, a junior in high school taking American literature, I decided I needed to go to India. So that's uh, how that started. And in uh, college, I was a literature major, and then I found a way to apply for a scholarship to India, and I got it, and I left for India the day after graduating college. I stayed in India what for college. Two years. I was a Stanford student back in the 1960s, early 60s. Mm. And uh, I graduated in 1964, and I went straight to India on a scholarship and that I found. And uh, I stayed two years, and my interests were still poetry. And then I had my own sort of secret, I mean, secret, not exactly, but I had my spiritual quest going on before it was before it was an international trend, right? The hippies and the Beatles and all were late 60s. Yeah. But this was 1964-65 when I got on my spiritual quest. At that time you didn't have hippies around the Ganges River, you didn't have big famous gurus flying to America, you know, you didn't have that. But I was where were you in India? Well, I was there for two years, so I was different places. The first year, this program that I was on, which was a Fulbright program where they were sending young people like me, you know, fresh graduates, to help part-time teaching English in colleges. And then we were free to do our own research or study program if we wanted to, and they would provide money for that if we wanted to, which I did. Um, but all we were required to do was to teach English 10 hours a week. So they, and they sent us in little groups to various cities. They were major cities, but they weren't the four famous cities. They weren't Bombay, Delhi, Calcutta, or what was then called Madras, now in Chennai. Those were the four big metropolises. But they sent us to smaller uh, provincial cities. So I was sent to Patna, which was the capital city of the state of Bihar. Uh, 
I didn't know anything, you know, I just, I was drawn to India, but I didn't really know anything. I never studied anything. I did. I studied Tagore in college. Oh, I wrote a, I wrote goodness. a paper on Tagore for hmm. some course I was taking where we had to write biographies. So I picked Tagore. Hmm. Good choice. But um, I'd never studied history. I'd never studied religion, anything. I just had this idea that the Upanishads in India were, had the had the had the spiritual truth, maybe, and I was going yeah. to find out about that. <laughs> so there was poetry, literature. There was my personal spiritual quest, and then I'm a 22 year old young woman who is also just interested in what you might expect. I'm looking for adventure. I'm looking for romance and love and excitement and interesting people to know. And so I was, I had all these mixed motives and I spent two years in India. The second year I went to Bombay and got a job teaching in a college and hung out with a lot of writers, artists, filmmakers who later became famous in, you know, Indian creators. We were just hanging out and I, you know, so th those were my two years in India and in the, in the middle of the, first year on the on the scholarship and the second year with the teaching job I traveled and did guru hunting I went and did all kinds of adventures so um I had this big experience in India in the mid 60s and uh I was studying the Hindi language there are many languages in India but because they sent me to Bihar as a Hindi speaking place I studied Hindi so that started me on the language. Uh, so I went back. I almost went to grad school in Chicago, but then I ran away because I didn't want to be an academic. <laughs> I lived in New York in the late 60s. I lost that battle. I, my, one of my little funny ways of saying it is that I I tried on quite a, in quite a few ways to fail and to be in to fail in academia. And I almost succeeded, but I did not succeed finally in failing in academia. <laughs> it mm. kept getting it kept getting me back, but I was pretty conflicted about academia. Anyway, so I ran away from the University of Chicago, where I was almost enrolled in a PhD program, went to New York, lived in New York for the end of the 60s. And then, of course, it was all uh, hippies and psychedelics, and uh, I was in... In very much involved in poetry. I was living in New York, going to poetry readings all the time and working at the Asia Society. So anyway, this is a background. Working where? At the Asia Society. Oh. In New York. Mm. What's at that, that time, they had, a, well, the Asia Society is a very big institution on Fifth Avenue now with a big building, and you can look it up and see what it is. Yeah. But it was originally uh, created by... I think Lawrence Rockefeller, who had some pocket change, so created a big institution focused around Asia. They had a literature program, and I was a literature person, and I'd just come back from India, and I was vivacious and bright. And so I was hired by the person who ran that literature program, which it it uh, it sponsored translation of Indian literature and readings and stuff like that. So I worked there for three years. And... Um, you know, got into the countercultural culture, but I was living a double life, right? I was working in this fancy uh, upscale 
cultural organization. And I was living in the Lower East Side, which is now the fashionable East Village, but then it was really for very low low income people. Well, Allen Ginsberg lived there, I lived there. <laughs> but it wasn't now it's very fashionable. Anyway, so all of these things continued. Poetry, Indian literature, study of Hindi language, suffering, and the drive to be free of suffering, which became very dramatic in those days for me, hmm. and some spiritual search, okay? Hmm. I, I can't, uh, so... I came back to California at the uh, in the end of uh, well fall of '69. So I did start a PhD program called in the field called comparative literature, and and I was doing English, American, French literature, and secretly, like it was my private little thing, I was still studying Hindi. And by then, I knew about these poets in Hindi. In the 15th, where 16th. were you studying? Studying here in Berkeley, UC Berkeley, comparative mm, literature. Yeah. And uh, I, that wasn't part of my program, but I was, I was then aware that there were these mystical poets in Hindi from around the 15th, 16th century, and that maybe someday I'd be able to read those because that's hard. The language is hard, somewhere between Shakespeare and Chaucer, like for the English speaking people. Mm. So, but eventually in the last stages of my program, I had to add another language. So I did. So then I started putting these Hindi, some of these Indian poets into my program before the final for the exams and so on. And uh, meanwhile, during that time, I, I came to Zen Center. So I came to Zen Center in 1974. And in all my trips to India, I didn't know Hinduism, Buddhism. I didn't know there was any difference. It was all the same big blob to me. But I, and so I met a bunch of Hindu gurus and had all kinds of adventures. Eventually, I was in some pretty serious personal trouble. Um, I mean, inner trouble. And uh, I eventually took off. I, I I ran away in the middle of a semester from UC Berkeley, and I left a short message to my roommate saying, don't call the police. I'm not a missing person. I'm just going on a trip. And I mm. took a train and hitchhiked and went to, Santa, to New Mexico. And I was, anyway, that was the beginning of my, well, that that resulted in my ending up going to Zen Center. In fact, were you in Tassajara at that time, 74, or was it later that you were there? When I was in Tassajara. I was the shoe so the head monk in uh, 74, uh, spring and summer. And then in the fall, I was director and did that for a year. So when I got back to Berkeley after a few weeks out on this adventure in New Mexico, um, I, I, had decided I need to learn how to meditate. And God knows how I figured this out, David, how I decided this, because I was just so unconventional. 
But I hitchhiked into Tassajara around the month of May or April, just in the interim, after the practice period was over. And I just walked in like I'd never been to Zen Center. I, you know, I just walked in and somebody met me and said, you know, well, who are you? And I said, well, here's who I am. And I'm here because I want to learn how to meditate. And they said, oh, really? <laughs> you know. And uh, I, they, nobody knew me. Nobody at Zen Center knew who I had known me. And uh, uh, they asked me some questions. I don't remember who it was. But, and then they decided they, to tell me that, okay, you can stay three days. And then if you're interested, you should go back to San Francisco and go to Zen Center. So I stayed for three days. I might have met you then. Probably did. And uh, I didn't know anything. I'd never had any meditation instructions. I remember some going in the zendo and, and and sitting without a zafu because that's the way people do it in India. Nobody puts a pillow. And somebody came along and said, "Would you like to sit on this?" And I said, "No." <laughs> I remember uh-huh. that. Anyway, uh-huh. so then uh-huh. I went to uh, San Francisco Zen Center, and as soon as I got a whiff of Mahayana Buddhist teaching, I said, that's it. That's where I belong. And I didn't get that from the Hindus. I I never, I met some pretty impressive people when I was in India looking, going on the guru trail, but it never got me. But the Mahayana Buddhist teaching immediately got me because compassion wisdom and compassion wisdom and compassion form and emptiness i said that's what i've been looking for mm. so i i moved immediately from berkeley to san francisco and as soon as they would let me move into the building i moved into the building 74 and you know then i became one of richard baker's devoted followers and mm you know, got to know everybody who was there. And uh, I, I, I was, I was really in a personal agony. I had an, I had an, what's now called an eating disorder in those days. Nobody used those terms. You know, you, maybe you have a, a, a weight problem, you know, or a moral, maybe you're morally deficient if you can't control your eating, but now we understand this as an addiction and as an eating disorder and I had a very severe one. And I was mm-hmm. in a really, really uh, very painful state. Mm. But I started going to seven-day sashins. Like, no matter what the hell happened, I was going to those like crazy. It took one year before I could sit in a 40-minute period of zazen and uh, not move you know, basically not move because I was in so much pain. I couldn't cross my legs. You know, I had to, it took me one year to sit 40 minutes, but I was going to seven days sashins every place that I could at both the city center and at Green Gulch. It was like everyone, no matter how insane it was and how hard it was, I just did it. And I am sure that doing that actually transformed my life. Uh, because mm. I didn't, because, you know, that's the way um, 
I mean, it was terrible. I didn't get over that that uh, eating disorder soon. I didn't get over it for another like six years. Mm. But even when I was living at at San Francisco Zen Center building, I was still like having this binge eating problem very severely. Mm. So even though I didn't solve my problems, I think going to those seven day sessions time after time after time being so lost and messed up really was really made a huge difference in my body mind, you know, don't you? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I think the fact that you say it did is the main reason I agree, you know, uh, Wow, that's really that's really uh, interesting. I had no idea. I mean, I remember you back then. I, I never, I don't, I don't think I I realized you were having any problem like no, that. No, no. Most people people don't know that unless I told them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, one of the characteristics of addiction is that it's 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 kept hidden. It's a shameful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I I told you all this well partly cuz it's one of the interesting parts of my life but and you know it's actually interesting to other people I I know that now. But I tell you this because it was from that place from um Zen Center I was still in grad school and I was struggling a lot because I was having so much blockage and just a lot of psychological problems and I was not in therapy at that time though I was a lot later. But I hmm. was still in grad school and trying to get through and having a lot of difficulty. But I somehow passed the exams, you know, that candidacy exams. It was it was really touch and go. In the past, I've always been like a star student, no matter whether I was in junior high school or in the master's program. I've been super good at that but i got to the place where i couldn't where i couldn't even function there and i barely passed these exams they sort of moved me through and then the question was was i going to do the dissertation and i decided do you want to hear about the drama that i had with richard yes. baker about <laughs> yes <laughs> so <laughs> so um i applied in the normal course of things because i was in academia for um a fellowship to take me to India. I decided that if I was going to do a dissertation, I was going to let go of all the English, American, French literature that I'd studied so much and do something from India because that that's where I was in my life. And so I applied for the, through the organization that, that gives um, fellowships to people working on PhD dissertations in India. It's called the American Institute of Indian Studies. And I got it. And I said, I'm going to work on these four uh, mystical poets of the 15th and 16th century, and I'm going to translate them, this and that. I did a proposal, and I got it. Meanwhile, this is 1975, and I'm deep, deep into my Zen Center life and my devotion to Richard Baker and to Mahayana Buddhism. So then I created what <laughs> what later I would call and Philip Wayland delightfully called 
my opera, my drama of should I do it? Should I go or should I give everything up up and just be a Zen student and go to Tassajara and give up all my my academic qualifications and my professional ambitions, give it all up, you know, and I did it with this kind of inner gesture, like, oh, should I do that? Wouldn't that, wouldn't I be great if I did that? Anyway, or uh. partly it was, partly it was sincere and partly it was a drama or an opera, but I was in the throes of deciding whether to decline that, um, fellowship to go to India and thereby end my academic career. And I decided that's what I would do. I decided, but I talked about it a lot, you know, in the dining room with people. I said, this and this is going on. And uh, <laughs> Baker, Roshi, Baker Roshi knew about it. And I decided I was going to give it all up and be a Zen student, go to Tassajara and be nobody but a Zen student. And then I wrote the letter I wrote, I typed the letter to the American Institute of Indian Studies. I folded it and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on the envelope and addressed it and was about to walk out to the mailbox on Laguna and Haight. And somebody said to me, Baker Roshi wants to talk to you. It was, it was at that moment, you know, like I had the envelope he wants to talk to you. Well, of course, with Big Roshi wants to talk to me, I'm there. And I went to talk to him. And he said, don't do it. I think you should go. Don't, se don't send the letter. Uh. And, <laughs> and uh, I did, so I thought, what's he doing? Is he just testing me? Is he testing me to see if I'm really a sincere Zen student who will give it up anyway? Or does he mean it? Or... No, and he just said, you know, if you really, if you really deeply want to come back to practice and to be in the community, you will, and uh, maybe your, maybe this work that you do will be valuable to us too. And uh, if you don't, you know, you wouldn't stay anyway. You know, like if you're not gonna, you're not gonna, whether you go or don't. Not that was his reasoning. Yeah. So he. So he told me to go. That was pretty good advice. He said some things to me that I don't think were nice, but in other situations. But that was, um, I think that was. That, that was good. That was very good. That's, and uh, That's important, yeah. I went. And um, I stayed a long time. Uh, and I worked on Kabir. I worked on the Bijak of Kabir because that I had to choose one text to work on and I had to learn to read that old old version of Hindi language and I got somebody in the university there who knew had special who worked on that himself a Hindi department professor and he worked with me uh, and we started translate that translating that thing word by word and he was explaining in modern Hindi to me what this means and what this means and I was reading commentaries and follow and I was living in an incredible place on the very bank of the Ganga, the Ganges River. And um, I still had this very severe eating disorder and I was mm. suffering. Mm. And I was doing my work and I always had these things. You know, I, I was also a cool person. People liked me. I had a lot of vitality and I was fun and interesting and intense and all of those things and talented, you know, 
And then I had these extremely dark and terrible inner struggles and self-destructive patterns. And uh, so I was doing that. And I I stayed there uh, almost three years. But in the two years, at the two-year point, I came back for a visit, a a kind of three-month visit, I think. And I, that was 1977. Well, yeah, but a year and a half in. In 1977, I came back. I came back to Zen Center, um, stayed there. They eventually, they put me in one of the rooms in that apartment that they owned above the the green grocer, you know, on the corner. Oh, yeah. Sure. They, were, they were using that apartment for guests and stuff. So I stayed there for the summer and kind of renewed my commitments and all. I mean, I never thought I let, let, let them go. But anyway, and that's when I met Kaz, because that was also Kaz's first arrival at, at Zen Center when Richard had invited him uh, when they met in Japan and Kaz had arrived there. So he happened to be there too, and we got to know each other. It wasn't a romance, but we did get to know each other. So uh, then I went back to India, stayed another year and a half. I... Um, that's, so that's where my Kabir work started. That's when I did my entire PhD dissertation on Kabir. I I was supposed to do something so-called comparative, but I said, no, I don't want to. And they had had enough with me. They said, okay, do whatever you want. Just do something. Because I had had a lot of trouble. And uh, I finally, I almost couldn't finish. I had... You know, I've actually written a memoir which hasn't yet found a publisher where all these stories are told, but um, it looked like I would never be able to finish this PhD. And some things happened where some of them made incredible stories, but some things happened that changed the situation within me. And I did finish it. I did get the PhD and Kaz and I got married and then I got pregnant, even though I had been medically declared incapable of getting pregnant. Oh, that's and interesting. Every, that's oh. another interesting story. It's all written. You can read my memoir, even though it's not published, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I'll, then I was launched. Then I, and then around that same time, my eating disorder finally went away. I stopped this addictive binge eating compulsive eating after many years of struggling with it. And And this is after you gave birth? No, before I gave birth. While Uh, you were pregnant? No, I, it was, the year was 1980. That's when all these things happened. 1980 was when I finished the PhD dissertation, which had been blocked for a long time. It's when Kaza and I got married and it's when, uh, this eating disorder stopped. You know, when when something like that ends, you don't exactly know that it's ended because it 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 could just be a break between episodes. Right. But after right. a certain a certain period of time, you kind of look over your shoulder and you say, "Oh my gosh, it's ended. It's not coming back." And that's when that happened, 1980. That. So then, then my star started going up, and I was. I got, I almost, I very quickly got this thing turned into a book and got a really good publisher for it. Yeah. And uh, got fertile and 
you know, had a baby and then had another one. Yeah, he got got, jo- got jobs, got academic jobs, and I became like successful. <laughs> and then Kabir, um, Kabir uh, became kind of the center, and this translation work brought together India, my spiritual yearnings, my poetry, my really deep, intimate involvement with poetry. Yeah, so that's how I ended up. So then many things followed from that. Now, I told you all this biographical stuff just in order to tell you how I worked on Kabir. So now I was in academia and I was, I had a family. Uh, and lots of other things happened. So for several years, I wasn't doing my practice regularly. I was a busy woman and I was successful and I wasn't suffering so much, you know, suffering is such a great motivator to practice. Uh Uh And uh, I was so busy, you know, I was teaching at Barnard for a year, then at Dartmouth, I was doing these temporary jobs while, you know, looking for a longer lasting job. And, uh, yeah, um, so I wasn't practicing. And then I had this, <laughs> yeah, I had this, uh, but I never felt that I let go of my deep love of Mahayana Buddhism and kind of belief, con- conviction in the practice. But the practice is also hard, you know. It's not easy to keep doing that. Anyway, the, the one year in this successful run of things, we were at Harvard. I had a fel- I had a one-year fellowship at Harvard, and we lived in the Center for the Study of World Religions. And you know, I was living the great life. And hmm. you know, Ma- hmm. Maureen Stewart, who was well, running- I, I know. I heard her speak once, and I I certainly know she and she was. Uh, uh, associated with L.C. Mitchell's Cambridge uh, Buddhist um, Association. Yeah, so she was actually running that place. She was the person yeah. in charge of it. So we were living in Cambridge, so we got to know her, and she was fun. She was a concert pianist, and she was a very lively person and very committed Zen teacher in a Rinzai uh, tradition. She, uh, and so I, <laughs> so, uh, you can stop me anytime because I'm telling my whole life story. So if oh no long, no get... no no! I have no greater purpose in life than to listen to this. This is great. Okay, so <clears throat> there we were. Uh, the year is 1984. It was 84. Yeah, because uh, our daughter Karuna was three years old, and that's and that's when I was pregnant with our son. Anyway. So we got to know her, you know, Kaz is already a Dogen specialist. And uh, I, you know, was whoever I was. She asked me to come over and do a reading of Kabir poetry to her students. See, Kabir is not like many of the Hindu mystics poets who are very focused on the devotional um, relationship to Krishna or Rama or uh, sometimes the goddess, um, uh, but 
very, very devotional in a rather dualistic way. Kabir is very non-dualistic and he defies dualities. And you can't say that he's Hindu or Muslim. He has a very mixed identity and he is against identifying as Hindu or Muslim, which were the two main cultures of his time in India where he lived. And he criticizes sectarian identities and being a, a, a follower of the formless path rather than the formed or dualistic path, he's very compatible with Zen or with Buddhism because he, he, he uses the word shunyata, shunya, empty, emptiness. Um, he's referring to an experience beyond form and beyond identity. So, and he's also very sharp and he's satirical and he criticizes society and he's, he's very rough and direct and in your face. So it's a voice I really like. So Zen people like it. So mm. actually I met my best when I do a kind of reading of, of Kabir poems because I really enjoy that. And I like the performing part of it. I get into it and, and the poetry is fantastic and sometimes fun and funny. So uh, she said, come over and do a reading for my students. And I did. And then after it was over, she and I just were chatting. And uh, I started telling her how I had been very deeply involved in practice at San Francisco Zen Center and all through those years. But in the last several years, after getting my PhD and starting to have academic jobs and having my marriage, my family and not being in so much trouble personally, I had kind of stopped sitting. I just wasn't doing it. And um, then I told her I had had this dream and I, I thought we were just having a friendly conversation. I wasn't kind of uh, flagellating myself or anything. And I said, you know, I had this dream recently where I was talking to people from San Francisco Zen Center I remember in the dream, Ed Brown was there and a couple other shaved heads were in the dream. And I said to them, weren't you surprised that after I was so intense and so dedicated here that I've stopped practicing? Didn't that surprise you? And the person in the dream said, oh, no, we knew that would happen. (laughs) 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 And when when I said that to her, I was just telling her my dream, right? When I said that to her, I just burst into tears. Mm. And uh, I realized how deep that was. That, And then I we came back to California and um, kind of my troubles started again. Because guess what? All that practice is a little bit like money in the bank. You get, you get some depth of... Uh, some access to some calm and and, uh, understanding. But then if you just keep living your life in a kind of um, unconscious way, or if you don't keep up the practice, then you, the money, you use up all the money in the bank, right? You use, you use up whatever. And and the practice is a, is something that you don't stop. (laughs) So anyway, I, I started having troubles again. And anyway, I started practicing with Joko Beck because I read something, an interview with her that I was very impressed by. And so for several years, I did practice Jokobek. She was a really good teacher. And where was she um, stationed at the time? She lived in San Diego. 
That's what I thought, yeah. But she had a group in Oakland. Diane Rosetto oh. was her Diane Rosetto was her uh close disciple. Who? And Diane Diane Rosetto, who started at Berkeley Zen Center, but then became a close follower, a disciple of uh, Joko Beck, and then eventually, you know, was given teaching authority by Joko. But uh-huh. Diane ran this uh, sitting group at her house in Oakland, and um, Joko used to come up once or twice a year and have a, do a session for us. And... Um, then once I went to San Diego and did this. Anyway, she was a really very, very good teacher. And um, eventually I came back to Berkeley Zen Center and then kind of on and off practiced at Berkeley Zen Center. But, um, and my latest practice incarnation is in the last, I don't know, six or seven years, I started hanging out with Reb. He would come to Berkeley and do this class, the yoga yoga room class, and I was going to that. And you know, I've really enjoyed Reb because, first of all, I like the way he uses language. The way that people use language is important to me. And um, so I started enjoying and sometimes sort of, you know, tangling with him. Reb has gotten very uh, more mellow than he was uh, in his younger days. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if if you're friends with him, but he's gotten a lot more loving, but he's still very, very completely sort of razor, not razor, but, um, you know, like an unflinching, unerring pointing at the innermost truth of Zen, of his life work. Yeah. So I like that, but he's also easy to talk to and um, fun. You know, you can play around and joke. and Anyway, so I started practicing with him, and I still am. So um, meanwhile, I kept on doing Kabir. Um, my professional life had so many ups and downs. <laughs> I got a tenure-track job at Berkeley. I ended up being denied tenure. I was there for – I taught there for eight years. I thought my, now my career is really over because I wasn't young anymore. I I did an adjunct work at UC Davis. I was in the Department of Religious Studies because it's religious poetry, you know. And um, uh, then I got an invitation to teach for six months at Stanford. I mean, it was a phone call. I had a reputation because of my book and my articles. And some yeah. people thought it wasn't a good idea that Berkeley kicked me out. But um, I mean, some people admired me and thought I was good. So somehow this person at Stanford called me up and said, you know, they don't, they have a small religious studies department, which never taught Hinduism at all. They have a very good Buddhist studies uh, program, but never, nobody on the faculty ever was there for India or Hinduism. So he called me up and he said, well, sometimes we just invite a visiting person to do a couple courses on Hinduism would you be interested in doing that? And I was doing by the course adjunct work at Davis and I knew Stanford would pay a lot more, which they did. And I said, yes, please. (laughs) So I went to Stanford for two quarters, six months. And I knew that was going to be the end of it. 
and they and then this miracle thing happened and they started supporting me and they started saying making every they started saying i think we can keep would you like to come back next year we can give you a few more courses and i'd said yes please cuz i was the breadwinner for our family you know we had two kids and cuz eventually cuz started getting bringing some money in but for a long time he wasn't bringing enough to make a difference so i had to do it anyway they gradually made my situation better and better and every year when i said okay this is it the axe is falling i'm a bear, i'm a i'm absolutely temporary person here they would say well we think we can do this for you or we think we should raise the amount we're giving you for a course or we think we should give you like four courses instead of two or finally we think we should put you on salary instead of paying you by the course and every time i would say yes please i wasn't asking for these things because i had no right to i was nobody and finally they kept me for 21 years and made me a senior lecturer which is below the professorial level but is a kind of tenure where they they are they're not going to get rid of you and i had a full career of 21 years at stanford mm. and it was pretty cool so during that so during the time when i had lost my mojo and i lost my job and i thought i was finished and i was struggling at home we were struggling in our family too and all kinds of things cause and i had a separation uh i didn't do any work any publishing but gradually at stanford i kind of got the groove back and got the feeling that maybe i can do something and that led to the really richest part of what i did in my work and now i'm what year you did that. you what year did you start at stanford 1996 I got kicked out of Berkeley. 1996. Yeah. I my last year at Berkeley was 93 and I was, you know, denied tenure there. And then between 93 and 96, I taught courses at uh, UC Davis in religious studies. And they were interesting courses uh, and they were also quite good to me because I was a respected person but You don't just hire a person and call them a professor. You you have to when you have a professorial position, you have to do a worldwide search and it's different than when you hire a temporary person like me. But they were good to me. And one one time I was teaching a course on ritual and symbol in religions and I I brought Reb in. This was back in like 1994. I huh. said, "Reb, you want to you want to come and give a lecture on ritual and symbol?" And he said, "Sure." <laughs> I mean so Rev and I have really known each other for a long time and uh but it's only the last 6 or 7 years that I sort of became his student but yeah I went to Green Gulch and picked him up in 1994 drove him to Davis he gave a lovely lecture from a zen perspective on ritual and then I drove him back to Green Gulch it was a nice time so then but at Stanford when after a few years when I saw that they weren't kicking me out I thought well maybe I can still go back and do some creative work. And that's when I started what's been the richest period of the work that I've done all related to Kabir. Am I going on too long cuz No. Okay, then I'm going to tell you about the work that I did uh since about 2002. I Kabir like these other great poets of India 
the vernacular ones, you know, like not Sanskrit, but the ones who um, wrote this passionate mystical and devotional poetry in all different languages of India in different periods earlier in the South and later like 14th, 15th, 16th centuries in North India. Um, They all live mainly in the culture. They live on uh, in singing their song. And Mm -hmm. this is called bhajan, devotional song. And this has been going on for centuries, many centuries. And now, in, if you go to India, I can take you right away to a place where you're going to listen to this poetry being sung by, by anything from a totally unsophisticated village group to the most famous classical singer on a stage will sing these songs. And I knew that this songs of Kabir are very, very alive in folk musics of all the regions of India where his language is known. And I, wa- I, had, I had looked into that earlier. I'm not a musician. I'm not trained in music, but I really loved, I learned a few songs that I could sing. You know, I got some music teacher way back in the 70s to teach me a few songs. And I had this dream that I would study Kabir through the oral tradition and through the musical performance, the way it came out in music. And long story short, that's what I did. I'm very good at writing proposals because I'm such, I'm a good writer. So I wrote this proposal for studying Kabir in the oral tradition. And I got this grant and I went in well, first of all, I went in in the 2000 as a kind of exploration to see, like, who would I meet and what would I do? And what is the oral tradition anyway? And I met this singer, this folk singer who was just beginning to get famous, who sings Kabir. That's his thing. He lived in a village in central India. And people said, you, sh- you must meet Kabir. And the first chapter of this book, which I'm about to tell you about, is called You Must Meet Kabir. I mean, not Kabir. You Must Meet Prehladji, which is the name of the singer. And his picture is on the front of the book. That's him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody said, oh, this is what you're interested in. You must meet Prehladji. And in the January 2000, I met Prehladji. I was on this short reconnaissance trip to find out, well, if I was going to do this, how would I do it? And he was like mesmerizing. He was amazing. I was in his village. He and his family members and some, you know, people sat down and we all sat down. And he started singing me these songs. And I'm pretty good in modern Hindi, so I could talk to him. And, you know, if I, there was anything I didn't understand in the songs, he would explain it. And he had this great personality, very charismatic guy. And I was just like, whoa, enchanted. So then I got myself a grant. I wrote a big proposal. And I went in January 2002 to do this project. Kabir oral tradition. And what a year that was. It was an incredible year of my life. I was, I was really anxious and I was afraid I was too old to do something like that. I was 59 years old. But the thing is my health improved steadily from age 37 when I got over my eating disorder and all these things changed in my life. My health is so good in the second half of my life. So anyway, I went over there 
And I traveled with this guy and his musical group for that whole year. Mm. And it was something else. It was like so amazing for me because I always loved singing, but I never had any musical training in my life. And my family had no music, but I loved singing so much that when I was a kid, I would stand by the record player and play every Rodgers and Hammerstein musical and sing it from beginning to end. I would sing it over and over again. I would be Ewell Brynner. I would be Gordon McRae. I would be Deborah Carr. I would be Julie Andrews. I would completely live those songs because I just loved it so much to sing. That's the, So in this project, I got to sing. And, you know, you can imagine that if you study poetry through written text, you learn something. You just, you know, nothing wrong with written poetry. But if you learn it, if you sing it, and you're in a surroundings where people are singing and people are listening and the whole thing is happening through music, then you have a different understanding of that poem, right? Can you, you mm, can imagine mm, that. Mm, mm, mm. You played the guitar and you were a rock musician. Anyway, <laughs> I remember I remember that. Um, it was a fantastic year. It was really, really great because my whole body got engaged in that. That music does that, right? And um, then I started this project and I went back to India every year. And this book didn't come out until 2015. Um, so from 2002 to that year, I was going every year and gradually, gradually getting this research done and written. And this is what I call my fat book because it's the only book I've done that's really quite long. Let, let me see and the title. You got your hand over the title. It's called Bodies of Song. Kabir Oral cool Traditions name. and Performative Worlds in North India. Wow. Bodies of Song. That's a cool name. Makes one, uh, or makes me uh, think, uh, hmm, it's uh, intriguing, an intriguing name. Hey, could you hold on a minute? Kaz is calling me from Japan. Hey, tell I'm him hello for me. It doesn't matter. Just, Take all the time you want. Okay, hold on. Yeah. David is in Bali. Yeah, I just put the the uh, volume uh, anyway the sound on again. I had it on mute. So Kaz says, Kaz says hello to you, David. And Hi, David Kaz. says hello to you, Kaz. Hmm. Kaz hmm. sends love. This is this is Kaz's ninetieth birthday today. Oh, Okay, so Kaz, I'm going to say bye. And I'll, uh, I hope you have a great birthday. Mm. Okay, David, we're back. That was great. I, uh, you know, I, Cos was the first person. I, I talked to a couple of people when I was first doing podcasts. And um, I would really like to do a good podcast with him like I'm doing with you. Uh I just had a specific thing to talk about with him and sort of waste of his time as far as I'm concerned now. But no big deal. Anyway, get back to what you were saying. Uh, find your thread of thought. 
Yeah. So anyway, I told you how this book got written. Yeah. And I'm I'm still extremely related to these guys. I've brought them to America several times, and today and right now I'm working on bringing them again for a U.S. performance tour in uh, next spring, March, April. So I'm still very uh, connected to them. And um, there's also an Indian edition of this book by one of the really, really good publishers in India. So this is the American edition. It's it's Oxford University Press, New York. So it took a long time, right? It took 13 years to get this book out. Yeah. Yeah. Bodies of Song. And then there's one more book that I'll briefly tell you about. And I, this, I've only done three books. You know, Kaz has done 40 books. Uh, <laughs> <he> is, <laughs> and uh, this is a small book. And it's called <laughs> Emptiness. Uh, Kumar Gandharv performs the poetry of Kabir. Kumar Gandharv was one of the great, great classical singers of the 20th century. Mm. Um, and there's a whole story behind how I got to write about his very, very extraordinary ways of singing Kabir. Um, I won't tell that whole story now because I've just been telling too many stories, but you know, I could send you the PDF of the book if you want, if um, you could see the story because it opens up with the story of this book, like how this happened, because otherwise I would normally never be qualified to write about a classical singer, but this happened in a very special way. Mm, so this yeah, is another, sure. another one that is very dear to me and that I'm very happy about. And the final thing that I'm doing, the final project I can tell you about that um, is, I don't know, maybe my last big project because... You well, know, let me say can... something here. Okay. The name of that book is, is, is I want to hear it again. I, you know, we got to get the... Emptiness. Singing Emptiness. Singing. I, wait a minute. I want to read it. Kumar uh, Gandharva, Gandharva uh, yeah. performs the poetry of Kabir. Yeah, yeah. Linda Hess. Very good. Me, uh, myself. And, so, yeah, and this is was a very big privilege to do this and a very beautiful thing, and how it happened is kind of magical. But... Um, after many, after all those years of being deeply immersed in music, especially Indian folk forms of music, of singing Kabir, and to some extent this one classical singer, I got drawn into a really old-time textual project of translating a collection of Kabir from an old manuscript, and that's what I'm doing now. A 400-year-old manuscript, because he didn't write. So we only have some old manuscripts that we can look at. Uh, and we have the living oral tradition, which I looked at for all those years. But this is one of the oldest good manuscript collections, big collections of Kabir. And I got drawn into doing this. I wasn't planning to do this, but I got sort of invited into this project. And I've been working on it for several years with a co author in who's a scholar in Prague actually and we meet every Friday for almost three hours and we're almost finished with the translation of 370 poems with introduction and notes 
And this is going to be published by a series of Harvard University Press of Indian Literature that they're doing. And so I, I'm still happily, I mean, not always happily. Sometimes I'm very grumpy and like, I just don't want to work. It's hard. I don't want to work. I'd rather watch television. But right. anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm still kind of richly involved in this kind of work. So that's it. That's a story of my work on Kabir. You know, I had a little tiny bit of experience uh, with this with you because in uh, 2011, I just decided I wanted to go to India for a few months and just continue doing the work I do. I can yeah. do it anywhere. And um, uh, I remember it was because Mother sent my sister and me some money from some some policy or something she had that came to fruition. So she just, uh, she probably gave us our shares. That's the way it tended to be. And uh, I always thought, uh, you know, I, it never occurred to me to save money. Uh, oh, we've got some money. Let's see. I thought, I want to go to India. And uh, I'd been reading to uh, Ananda Dallenberg, Claude Dallenberg, in a convalescent home where he was, a pretty, mm, uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't sitting up or anything. Uh, uh, and uh, we read all sorts of stuff. And the what I really liked the most was Ramana Maharshi. And uh, he didn't want to hear any Zen. He'd had enough Zen in his life. Uh, and, uh, so I thought, oh, I'll go this mountain where, uh, Ramana Maharshi was. I didn't know anything about it. Right. Yeah. So Clay yeah. came with me, uh, and, uh, Katrinka came too, but she came, uh, uh, like a week later or something. She couldn't come at first. And so Clay and I, uh, landed in Chennai because that's, uh, near Terwanomaly where he was. And, uh, uh, it, it turned out my best friend in India lived in Tiruvannamali. I had no idea. And that it was a place where there were gurus and stuff. I had no idea. But you had invited me. I saw you in America, and you had invited me to come to Pune for this cultural festival. So Clay and I flew to Pune, and you had us picked up at the airport. Oh, God, I forgot. Yeah, and you made us honored guests for a, it was at least three days uh, for this cultural festival. Uh, oh, yeah. And it was in, in Pune, right? And it was, uh, it was Indian culture. It was, uh, it was not international. And so uh, I got to, you know, there was a film on uh, the, uh, singing uh, the, the Kabir type music, uh, and um, uh, we experienced many things there. And uh, then when we were leaving, I remember it was so funny. Clay was nineteen, and you know, you asked what was going to happen. I said, "Well, I'm going to go back to uh, Chennai and meet Katrinka, and we're going to go to Tiruvannamalai." And I don't know, Clay's going to stay here. And, just, and you went, what? You're just leaving Clay in India by himself? I said, yeah. 
And you, oh, Clay, here's my number. If you need anything, get hold of me. I'll be in, we're going to go to Varanasi. Anyway, he did fine. Uh, he, he had no, he called me up and say, oh, Dad, I don't, can you send me some money? I said, no. I said, there's food everywhere. Just go to any ashram. They'll feed you. Um, and he did fine. He had one rupee when he finally met me at the end. And he came all the way across India. Anyway, we had a wonderful time, and it was thanks to you. I forgot about that. Now I remember. Yeah. This um, traumatic experience you had with Judaism, what was that? Oh, gosh. I'd rather send you my my essay on it. That piece has actually been published. But basically, to be very brief about it. Yeah. Um, um Well, there were a few parts to it. You know, American Judaism in the 1950s was was pretty lame. I mean, it was completely uh, male-dominated. Girls didn't have uh, bat mitzvahs. <clears throat> oh, they didn't. Hmm. No. Uh, and, um, okay, so I'll just give a few points. Um, from so one of the things was that I insisted that I should have a bat mitzvah, uh, and they said, "Okay, you can," even though nobody else I knew ever did. They said, "Okay, you can," um, uh, but also I had um, I had found reading the Bible to be troubling. Basically, you know <laughs> what I'd say now is that the God of the Hebrew Bible is really horrible. <laughs> and it was totally, you know, totally un, uh, uh, uninspiring. And not only that, but horrible, horrible, you know, and I could elaborate on that. All these are things that I've actually written about um, in my personal writing, some of which has been published. But, well, um, um, I, I would like, you know, uh, uh, I would like to gather links and names together and get that all in one place on cute.com. I probably already have something. I, there's so much there. Okay. I don't know what's there either. <laughs> okay. So, uh, uh, I tried to ask them questions about these horrible things like genocide and hatred of, you know, the, anybody that wasn't Jewish and, all kinds of things, you know, like, and the angry, the angry, jealous God, the wrathful God. I said, what, you know, like if I, you, and they were so unable to answer that. They just like the rabbis and the, you know, the rabbi and the whatever Sunday school people, they had no answers. Like, why would anybody worry about that? And um, uh, I just heard a little clink, which means these I'm going to have to take off soon because they only go up, they only go for like an hour and a half. But anyway, uh, but then I'll just do the speaker, the computer speaker. Well, so they're really good. Thing. They're really good. They're they're yeah. cordless. Uh, yeah. Uh, I but I don't have those. Uh, I'm very impressed. And the mic is in them. Yeah. That's and really it's good. Really good. Really but, good. But they but they they clink out at about an hour and a half or an hour and forty minutes. Anyway, so um, that was the beginning of not not uh, being not getting satisfaction also 
there was a social and economic thing. Our family was definitely on the poor side and everybody was upwardly mobile and they were very, it was very big in the, you know, so I always felt like an outsider. The kids were snotty. Then, <laughs> uh, but that's not the worst of it by any means. Then, then the actual Hebrew Bible for somebody like you and me, like somebody who ends up being attracted to Buddhism is just horrific. Like, why would anybody want that, you know? But nobody had the faintest idea of why I'd be troubled by that. Then I had the bat mitzvah, and I had some very deep and original ideas. And I wrote my speech. You know, you have a kid gives a speech. You know, you study and you learn how to recite the Torah and the Haftorah, which is cool. And then you give a speech, and then you get a lot of presents. So all of this was attractive to me. Uh, but the speech I wrote, they censored. I wrote a critique of the idea of the chosen people. You know, the Jews call themselves the chosen people, God's chosen people. Oh, yes, I know. And as God's chosen people, they can go and, you know, um, obliterate the other peoples and other gods and everything. And they do that. God tells them to. And God tells Abraham to kill his own son. And Abraham says, yes, I will, God. And Abraham is is a great icon because he's willing to kill his son for at God's order, you know, so sick. So anyway, <laughs> um, the idea of the, the chosen people I saw was pernicious. I saw that I was 13 years old and I understood that. And I wrote a critique of it. And they required me to show it to them. And I did, and they they basically said, you can't say that. And they rewrote the parts of the speech that they found controversial. And um, I had enough guts to write that, but I didn't have enough guts to defy them and say it anyway when they said I couldn't. Mm -hmm. So that was, a, that was a big grievance that I had. The worst part was my family. Mm. My uh, older sister, who's five years older than I, um... My mother was basically the horrible demon in the family. Where were we? We were, I was getting to the oh, worst part. Right. I remember. This is cool. You know, um, there are, you know, that guy that did the Stanford Prison Project. Yeah. Which, uh, right. Uh, he, uh, he gave a talk here at the Green School, which is the ultimate. New Age sort of school all the way, you know, from beginning through high school, uh, all bamboo buildings and everything. Anyway, Kelly and I heard him, and I was very impressed with him. And uh, one thing I got out of him and also the guy in New York uh, who did those experiments with getting people to do horrible things. Uh, yeah, I uh, I, Milgram or something like Shock a Milgram uh, is, and and I think he was right. It's about 10% of the people naturally have a sense of what's right and wrong, even if it goes against everything they're being told. But he said it's only about 10%. So if you've got the wrong management, if you've got, if, if you don't have good controls and a good system from up on top, which insists on certain values and things, then there's only going to be, you know, 
of the people are going to know better. And um, you are one of those 10%. Who is? You. You realized on your own with no uh, nobody telling you that there was something wrong with this idea of uh, the chosen people, something that didn't uh, resonate with you, and you acted on your own. So the guy's name, I can't remember his name. Uh, it starts with Z, uh, the prison yeah, project. His first name is Philip, and his last name is Z. Z, Z, Z. I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. Philip Z. Um, yeah. You know, and... Uh, uh anyway uh he 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 uh, uh testified for the uh prison guards in Abu Ghraib who'd done terrible things saying yeah. uh, he testified against the idea which uh, the administrations tend to use oh it was a few bad apples yeah right and he said no it's not a few bad apples it's bad management it, well, you know. yeah, I'm. I might quibble with the ten percent figure. Um, I'm just looking it up because Zimbardo, Philip Zimbardo. Zimbardo, yeah, cool name. Sounds like somebody would work in a circus. Italian, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I might. Oh, you mean he might? He'd say ten percent could withstand the pressure of being. A, a huge sort of pressure to be to to do no, so i can understand that no no, no. Um, he was, didn't he he would he just said it's only about 10 percent who know something is right or wrong with no you I, know. Don't, I couldn't put it that way i would say that most people do know what is right or wrong and when they're pushed into doing something by the pressure of the social situation or by something that brings forth their worst side or by a military situation where they get conditioned. I, I mean, I read, I can tell you examples. I used to teach a course on violence and nonviolence. And I, so I really, really was interested in violence <laughs> and uh, you know, so people get trained to be evil Um bit by bit. But even yeah. then, they know there's something wrong and they get twisted inside and it's now well, called moral injury. So it's yeah. not that they know, it's just that the pressure of the environment brings out the worst or yeah. forces them to do things which otherwise they wouldn't do. So Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. There's another thing though about Judaism is, and I, I'm sure you've discovered it does have a uh, profound, uh, deep side to it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm not now going around saying that Judaism is bad and, and nobody should do it, I'm saying what shaped me in the 1950s. Right. Uh, there, there's a lot of very, very cool developments in American Judaism, as, as we both know. Right. Uh, but... Um, well, I, I could talk more about this, but let me just tell you, but, you know, I could go on because I was a, I was a professor of religious studies for years. Yeah. So I've studied uh, uh, how religions 
how how in the fields of interpretation religions become all kinds of things beautiful things profound things evil things all all kinds of things so that's true of all of them i just going yeah. to tell you the other part that really really shaped me in a very deep way because it was so personal uh my mother uh was a, was the major source of trauma in my life you know it she just was messed up and um so I became very messed up by being her daughter, uh, but I also resisted and and uh, struggled with her. And my older sister was more of a victim of her, partly because her personality was more submiss submissive than mine, and partly because she was older. And I got to, I as the younger one, I got to check things out more and observe. Mm. But anyway, um, and yeah, but yeah. My mother, there were very many things that, that could be said about what was so harmful about her. And of course, you know, in much later years, I understood that she was harmed and she was, you know, that this is all a very big web. But as a child, I was just being harmed. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, uh, and she harmed my sister in such a dramatic way that I watched as a teenager uh, when I was 14, 15, 13, maybe... No, yeah, thirteen. From thirteen on, I watched something that happened, and then much, uh, and it absolutely branded something into me that made me uh, reject Judaism in a fierce way. Um, and she, what she did was, she was always trying to manipulate her family members to make them do whatever she needed whatever she thought she needed to do to make herself feel powerful or or to avoid her own demons or God knows what, but she was always controlling. And she wanted, she was very frustrated that my father was not a good earner and she wanted to be like these women, these Jewish women who had a lot of money, you know, the men were into real estate and all this stuff and they made a lot of money, right? And she felt very upset that we were we didn't have money and we had this tiny house. And she, she was always torturing everybody for their in the family for their inadequacies and for their hard disappointments. And she did dream that her two daughters would live out her dreams and bring her what she wanted in life. And I mean, this is just a very harsh description, but I don't have time to tell you all the complexities of her. But yeah, her my sister. Uh, you know, went through her Jewish education, you know, the usual stuff, Sunday school and confirmation. And she was, she hung out with the Jewish kids. That was what my mother wanted. And my mother wasn't really religious, but she did feel a very strong, possessive attitude towards being Jewish and staying Jewish and being an insider. And my sister in high school, when she was 15 years old, had a boyfriend who was two years older than her, who was a beginning in college at San Diego State. We lived in San Diego. And in high school, he was her boyfriend, a Jewish guy named Don Solomon. Don Solomon's family was rich, real estate. The mother was this gorgeous woman who had beautiful clothes. And when Don Solomon fell in love with Dorothy, my sister, who was this lovely blonde girl, um, and she she went with him. She she liked him too. And my mother was very happy because Don was planning to go to law school and be a lawyer. And Dorothy would could marry Don, and then she would.
be in the elite circles and then she'd have a lawyer for a husband and that was the way she wanted things to be. My mother, after two years of going with Don and he was in the Jewish fraternity, you know, at San Diego State and they, they do this ritual called pinning, right? Where you put your fraternity pin on your girlfriend and that's somewhere in between going steady and being engaged. Right. Somewhere, so she got pinned to him and somewhere yeah. around two years, my sister decided she wanted to break up with him. You know, he was her first boyfriend. He was her only boyfriend. She was from age 15 to 17. And she wanted to break up with him and go to college herself and be more free. My mother became enraged that she would break up with Don. And she started punishing her. And I watched this. She made her life at home a hell. She did anything to make her go back with Don. And she mercilessly punished her for not doing it. But the worst thing that happened was that she got another boyfriend. His name, like yours, was David. He wasn't Jewish. He was such a lovely, lovely young man, really beautiful young man. And she really loved him. And by that time, she was in college and he was in college. My mother attacked David mercilessly and attacked Dorothy for having him and made him feel like, honestly, he was under the attack of a demoness every time he would show up at the house to pick her up. And then he stopped coming in the house and he would come and bring his car outside the house and Dorothy would go out to go out with him. And then my mother started attacking Dorothy at him and for being a coward and not being willing to come in the house. She was relentless. The cruelty was beyond anything I ever expected to see as a young person. And I, I and eventually David broke up with her because he said, I can't handle this. You know, I mean, that's what I assume he said. I can't like marry into this family, which is going to treat me like this. And when he broke up with her, she fell apart. And it was the beginning of a long deterioration of my sister, which finally ended in suicide. Oh. But oh. very much later in life, but her life had fallen apart quite badly. Hmm. When, I when I watched that cruelty in the name of Judaism, like he has to be Jewish. You can't marry anybody but somebody Jewish. When I saw that, I said, I, I absolutely clear, clearly said, I'm out of here. It's over. I'm finished with Judaism. I'm getting out of there and I'm getting out of my family. I had to actually get out of my family, uh, I felt. And um, then I spent a lot of the rest of my life getting, getting, escaping. Of course, you think you're escaping and you don't. And then you have to find out what it is you're really escaping. Right. What about your father? He was a very nice person. This is a common story. When you have a cruel mother, you have a nice father who is weak and who won't oppose her and who won't protect her right. children. Right, right, right. He was a very, very nice person. Uh, mm. had very nice qualities. And I did get some good out of him, but I ended up being angry at him too for not protecting me. Yeah. So I absolutely rejected Judaism so strongly. And then more and more, I hated that Jewish God. You know, like, really? What the fuck? Why, you know, who would ever be inspired by that? And uh, I, but I had a much more 
vehement reaction than somebody who just objected to the theology, you know, or to the Bible. It was very deep in me. And I hated it so much that I couldn't even be around Jewish places or anything. Much later in life, I tried to heal that. But uh, meanwhile, I, I was looking for something else. And I told you in high school, I discovered India. So mm. that's the short, that's the, that's that story. Mm. You said that was a story you wanted me to tell. Yeah, well, that's um, uh, that's touching. That's touching. Uh, incidentally, uh, I grew up in a home that was influenced by Emerson and Thoreau, so I had it. I had that sort of cosmic uh, background at home. And in the eleventh grade, I did. We had to do a paper. I did mine on Emerson. Uh, and the, the teacher said it was the best paper she ever got. Yeah. <laughs> I loved Emerson. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I really wasn't aware, though, of his influence from uh, Hinduism. And there was some early Buddhist stuff that he and Thoreau were aware of, if I recall correctly. Vague on it. I I really need to uh, study, uh, get the get the actual history of that relationship. It ha people have written on that uh, because people are interested, and I always tell it in these vague terms about my what I discovered. In yeah. Prison. Now you mentioned uh, that uh, they discovered uh, Emerson and Thoreau discovered the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. Yeah. Now it would seem to me. The Upanishads are, are, they're they're telling you what it's really all about, right? And uh, but the Bhagavad Gita, I mean, here in Bali, the 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 Ra, wait a minute, the what's it called, the Rama Ramayana, yeah, it, it's real big, and all the dances and everything are based on the the Ramayana. We have a a big mural. Downstairs, it was done by. Uh, uh, well, it's not a mural; it's a a big painting on cloth that was done by a friend of our landlord's. It's beautiful and it's old and faded. It's and it's all Ramayana. Uh, I I've never been interested in Bhagavad Gita or Ramayana. Uh, seemed to me the Upanishads were where it was at, and I. I stayed in some ashrams just as a guest briefly, and one guru made a big point about that and gave me a book on the Upanishads. Uh, yeah. I, and, I agree with you. Yeah. The, there is something in the Bhagavad Gita. There are things about the, I've also written an essay on the Bhagavad Gita, but the things that um, – there are things that I really, really react against in the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. But there are also some very profound and great things, um, two things, I would say. One of them that is powerful, although the way that it puts it sort of doesn't sit well with the way we understand self and no self in Buddhism, but it does propose that kind of underneath, to use a metaphor, a spatial metaphor, but kind of underneath all of the tumult and confusion and desire and fear and violence and all of this, you know, stuff that makes up our personalities and our ego, that underneath that there is some very simple, uh, essential being 
that we could recover, that we could become aware of, and that would be free of all these karmic problems. Right. So that's powerful teaching. Uh, of course, it uses terms that that are, are a little bit problematic if you if you prefer the Buddhist idea of, of Buddha nature and no self. But there's that. But the other thing that's really great in the Bhagavad Gita is this um, action without attachment to the fruits, this analysis of action um, and how you could possibly arrive at non-karma producing action. Yeah. It's very, very uh, good, you know? Yeah. But there yeah. are other things in the Gita that are not good, according to me. <laughs> Although yeah. Gita is worshipped by many people, and they would get mad at me to hear me say it. Yeah. I I don't have trouble with um, uh, language, dualistic language because I was raised in a family that looked at the dualistic language of the uh, Gospels and interpreted it as being about the nature of mind. And just my father said, you know, it had to be stated in a way that people could understand at the time so that it would continue, you know. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I'm not disturbed by... Uh, you know, things that are rejected like Atman and Anatman, you know, self and no self. The only thing I didn't get that I wanted to ask you and I forgot was I wanted you to sing a Kabir song. Can you do that for you, Lee? <laughs> well, I don't know. Could I do that another day and you could just pin it on because I need to go? Um, yeah. How out. about doing, a, doing another one that's like... Uh, that's like uh, 20, 30 minutes where you just do read Kabir and... That would probably be the best. Then you That would be better than this whole two hours. Anyway. No. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, let's do that another day. You have to... No, you have to send me when. I have to what? Send me a oh. date. Okay, okay. And I'll call you at the same time. All right. All right. Have a nice day. You too. Day. Thanks a lot. That was great. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks a lot, Linda Hess. That was great. That was great. Wow. She was saying, well, I don't think I'm a good subject for your podcast. I don't have any, you know, people have this idea that they need to remember Suzuki Roshi or something like that, or they have this idea of, of, of the format for this or that they're not important or that they have nothing to say. It's very common, especially with women. Although, uh, Linda's, I think Linda uh, is plenty uh, has plenty of hot spot, and uh, I'm looking forward to her doing uh, her Kabir performance. Anyway, it was great, Linda. Um, so, until next time, this is DC. Kubav Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggett Bandita. Guest dog at Bumbu or Bumbita, Feline Manis, and dear lovely Kadrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. <laughs>